Where do I begin? So I know some of you like to have the bite-sized version, so I'm going to give it to you really quick. I wanted to quit watching this at about the 20-minute mark and the 37-minute mark. I wrote those down. But there were weirdly engaging elements in this episode. When I say weirdly, I mean things that I would totally be down for if they would actually follow through on them. Now, I've seen this show before, or at least I've seen season 3 and season 4 several times, and I've kind of gone through season 1 and 2 back in the day. So I don't think they're going to follow through on these elements, but I can see looking at it why it's like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe let's give it a shot, let's give it a shot. <sighs> What's most interesting about this episode is that it was actually an achievement. No, really. So first, they brought James Conway back to direct it. You may or may not have heard me praise that director before. He worked on Duet, uh, Way of the Warrior, Death Wish, and Frame of Mind, all of which were things that are good episodes. He also directed Justice, if we want to go ahead and add that to the list, but the fact of the matter is, the man's a good director, and he was the first pick for doing this one, because it was believed he could do the challenge of trying to accomplish what was a very ambitious project. Um, this is the first time... Well, hang on, let me, let me circle back to that. Um, they wanted to get someone who really could move things forward on a technical level. Ronald D. Moore was actually working as a visual effects director, and he actually had several people working under him who had several people working under them. Now, you're probably thinking, of course they did, Laura, but what I'm trying to explain here, and I'm failing at, is the level of effort that went into the construction of this episode is hard to underestimate. Unique in Star Trek history, at least up until Discovery and or any recent stuff like with Picard or whatever's come out by the time this video goes live. Because I guess uh, Lower Decks will have come out by then too, now that I'm thinking about it. It hasn't come out from this perspective, obviously. But I bring this up because this was a huge technical achievement. Um, 43 sets they had to design and build for this episode. 43, all of which needed to be set up and lit fresh on the go. Now, if you don't understand what I mean by that, if you build a set, you're not done. You need to design places where the cameras go, where the chop-offs are, to figure out which angles you shouldn't record. In other words, places where you could see where the set ends or where edges of it show or whatever. You also need to make sure it's lit properly to make sure that you can see it from the right angles, because lighting is a huge deal when it comes to any kind of visual medium. It's one of the reasons why I bang on so much about good lighting design, which is actually pretty rare uh, when it comes to video games, at least. So tons and tons of work with that. Um, they also wanted to really throw themselves into... They did rehearsal. Let, let, let's start with that. I'm just looking at my notes here. There's so many things they did, it just boggles my mind. They actually had rehearsals for this and front readings. Now, if you've been paying attention to these ruminations, you'll know that that's not how that worked. They don't do rehearsals on Star Trek. They haven't done rehearsals because the actors are amazing. I'll give them credit for that. But also because they have everything set up and templated in such a way where it's like, okay, get your lines memorized. Here's the beats. Director talks to you. This is the scene. Do the scene. Occasionally they'll do a second take or a third take, but they don't do a dry run. They did two for this episode. One with just the cast and the script reading, you know, basic 
if you've ever done like a play, you know what that means. Everyone just sit, sits around in a room in their, in their casual clothes, just reading the script and reading their lines to get used to how they talk to each other. Which, by the way, was also the first time many of these actors had ever seen each other was during that script reading. But then they had an actual honest-to-God rehearsal the next day. Star Trek was kind of doing a weird thing at this point in history. If you watch most franchises, they do a thing where they go, wah, then they go, wah. But sometimes they go, wah, after going, wah. And I just realized the people listening to the MP3, it, it ups and downs, ups and downs, right? What usually happens is the people in charge try to do stuff in order to make an up happen out of a down. Now, I'm explaining this badly, so let me try this in a different manner. When a franchise is waning in popularity and sales figures, a lot of the times they'll try to do something to try and bring interest back. New blood, new show, new game, new book, new developers, new kit, new something, right? Something will be done to try and rejo rejoin their interest, and sometimes, indeed, honestly, most of the time it works, and people go, ah, hey, such-and-such -such is good again, or hey, did you check out the new such-and-such? Probably the er example of this would actually be World of Warcraft subscription figures, which go, ah, new patch down, new patch down, and then an expansion comes out and they go way up and then they go down again. That pattern is something that a lot of franchises in fiction have experienced for decades. It's nothing new. So Star Trek was on a down. It was still doing good, though. See, that's the key part. You don't wait until you're rock bottom. That's a different thing. That's a rejuvenation. That's taking a dead franchise and making something out of it, which is actually what ended up happening to Star Trek in the end, but that's, that's well in the future from this point. No, at this point, Star Trek was still doing well, just it was on a downswing. And if you actually pay attention to viewing figures and sales figures, if we're being honest, Star Trek was on a downswing from about uh, season two or three of DS9 onwards. I don't mean that as a mark of quality about DS9. I mean, when TNG ended, we had DS9 and Voyager, and then into Enterprise. And if, like I said, it's just, it's a smooth line down with a couple of bumps here or there. Now, again, no measure of quality, just... That's kind of normal and natural for what tends to happen. So, Star Trek was still going strong enough that they still had the weight and the financial backing and the support of the studios to be able to throw themselves into something like a $12 million episode. Now, that may not sound impressive, but from what I understand, even adjusted for inflation, again, not counting Discovery or Picard, this is still the most expensive ep episode ever made in Star Trek history. They really threw a lot of weight into making this thing happen from a financial perspective. I also want to give you a couple of dates to help out here. They started working on and doing the initial production work of this thing in February. Nemesis, Star Trek Nemesis, they started working on that in uh, November, same year, 2001. Sorry, I should give you the date, 2001. I was in college at the time. And <laughs> anyways, so you know that's uh, that's the timeline and roughly where things were at. In fact, they would work on this uh, on Enterprise from about February to about September, which is pretty normal. But to give you even more factoids here, they were working on this episode, this specific episode, in terms of uh, actual production and film work, not pre-production, not post-production, just working on it from May fourteenth to June 19th. That's 36 days. 
anybody who's been following my discussions can tell you, you know, I've, I've been telling you about the, the average time an episode would have of production time. You know, about seven days is about average. We talked about that with Shades of Grey, where they had an astonishing three days, which is nothing. And, of course, some of the more extensive episodes of DS9 and TNG both have gone into the, the tens range. But 36? Then, <laughs> to continue here, this uh, this episode had 300-plus visual or, uh, special effects shots. Uh, shots is actually inaccurate. It's closer to 70 shots, but 300-plus special effects that had to be done in post. This is why Ronald D. Moore had people under him who had people under them, because they had to really be efficient about their time utilization in order to make all this work while still looking good. And Foundation was just, oh, they were dying, trying to get this stuff done in time. And again, flinging money at this. Then we add in a couple of niggles. So my favorite niggle is the fact that well, this was a show that was coming out in 2001. Now, can anyone tell me what big thing was happening about 2001 when it came to television? I'll just go ahead and tell you. It was the shift from 4x3, or, yeah, 4, yeah, four, I'm saying a 4x3 to 16x9. In short, box or widescreen. Nowadays, uh, 16x9 is pretty much the norm. The very monitor that my webcam is sitting on right now is 16x9, and that has been the norm for some time. But at this point in history, that was still something that was being debated, and televisions were still kind of being shuffled over bit by bit, and it wouldn't become the norm for probably another decade or so, at least in terms of here in the States, which is where they were primarily concerned when it comes to viewing figures, so they weren't sure where to go with that. Now, you're probably thinking, why the hell does that matter? Because the director, Mr. Conway, he had to film every shot, keeping in mind only the very center. In short he was deliberately filming everything so that if you chopped off the tops or the sides, in other words, if it went one direction or the other in terms of the resolution, the shot would still work. Now, that is also very limiting when it comes to the kind of shots you can construct. And obviously they did eventually go with 16 by 9 right at the last minute, uh, three days before they started doing the final, uh, I forget what it's called right now, the thing where the director sits down and chooses shots to go to the editing room. <laughs> and so he had to go through and be like, okay, quick, hang on, hang on, hang on, <laughs> and try to select and move and make sure the right shots got through that were better for 16 by 9. So tons of money, tons of people, tons of sets, tons of effects, tons of time, one of the better technical Star Trek directors they've ever had. Conway really is a genius when it comes to technical matters, and that's why I give him so much praise. So, why do I have so many issues with this episode? Oh, by the way, they also brought back an interesting cast of people. Uh, Vaughn Armstrong, who it's always nice to see, who is actually a very regular veteran Star Trek actor. I've been pointing out his side roles many a time. This is actually the first time he's ever played a human as Admiral Forrest. We also have, uh, they brought back in James Horan. Oh, man, I can't read my own text here. I'm going to say Horan, who is uh, Tosin over on Voyager, or <clears throat> Ikatikla over on Deep Space Nine. He's also a, a semi-regular side guest star kind of a guy, and he's pretty good, too. He plays future guy. We'll talk about him later. Don't worry. They brought back... Uh, they brought back. What am I saying? They, they brought in... Um, oh, God. I wrote his name down. 
please tell me I got it right here. Sorry, I didn't write this down early, but it's right down here. It's for Saval, right? Ambassador Saval, who is... Please tell me I wrote down his name. There it is, Gary Graham. Uh, he's good. I actually like him in general, and I tend to enjoy him basically whenever I see him, so seeing him as Saval was a nice touch. Also, Dominic Keating, which I'm only pointing out because Dominic Keating is one of those actors that I don't see much of, but every time I see him, I like him. And he actually does add a nice little bit of nuance to what is otherwise a fairly flat character of Reed. But then there's the big three. So obviously they need someone big and strong and bold and bearing and, and dumb and stupid to play Archer. I'll talk about Archer more as we go through this entire series, and especially through this episode. By the way, this is going to be a long one. I have three pages of notes. Hang on. One, two, I have four pages of notes here. Forgive me. Scott Bakula was an interesting choice, but someone who was kind of at a weird point in his career and ultimately wasn't really considering it. In fact, he turned... Well, I, wouldn't, I don't want to say he turned it down at first. It's more like he wasn't... He was like, nah, nah. But then several Paramount executives specifically looked over the cast sheets and the scripts and reached out to him and said, you're perfect for this role. I'm going to decide whether I think that's true or not as we go through this. However, I am going to say based on season three and season four, I agree. The problem is that Archer is demonstrably different from this one. So I'm kind of curious if there's a little bit of politicking going on here with, oh no, this is totally great for you. I don't mean this at all, of course, but I really would like you to take this role so I can get some brownie points and make sure to get this show up and running because, I mean, we'll have Scott Bakula, right? We'll have the, the, the tech grid. Come on, please, please take the role, God. Then we have Jolene Blaylock. That's an interesting choice. Apparently she really liked the script of this episode, which was the deciding factor for her picking it up. I'm going to hesitate on talking more about Jolene Blaylock until we get further in. I only want to say one thing really quick. Do we have to do the cat suit? I know, I know, I know. Laura, you're dumb and stupid, but I I'm sorry. We see her in plenty of other outfits throughout the course of the show, including in this episode where she looks fine. She is an attractive woman. If you want an attractive woman, put her in the robes at the beginning of the episode. She looks good in them. Right? The Vulcan robes? You know what I'm talking about, right? Before she actually joins the crew? But no, we gotta have a cat suit. And it looks really uncomfortable in a kind of... Uh, her, the way she physically moves is different in the cat suit. Probably because she literally has a... Uh, oh, what do you call it? A girdle or whatever underneath it. In order to... And, and just the whole thing looks really uncomfortable in general. And I feel that that actually hurts her performance at times. This is a shame because... I actually liked Paul in this episode... I'll cover that more as we go further into it. But that leaves us with the third character. Now, this is the strangest one. In hindsight, this makes perfect sense, but within the confines of this episode, I would not assume that Tucker was the other one of the big three. Now, let me rewind a second. You're probably thinking, Laura, why are you talking about the big three? I don't remember if I ever really brought this up in previous shows, but Star Trek has had the formula of the big three since the original series. Spock, McCoy, Kirk. And over on TNG, it was Riker, Picard, and Data. And over on Deep Space Nine, it was Cisco and... 
See, now I'm stalling, because it actually kind of changed every now and again over on Deep Space Nine, now that I'm saying that. But Cisco is always number one, and Kira is always number two. The third slot swapped around a little bit. The same thing actually hoping happened on Voyager, uh, with Seven taking the third slot at, you know, once she shows up on the show. But anyways, the big three is a fairly common concept in television in general. It's what I t- talk about when I talk about A-listers, B-listers, C-listers, etc. It's how high a tier of an actor you are relative to your importance on the show. Now, that's mostly political. Can I just say that? Because obviously even a D-lister can be the main character for a show and can absolutely carry that show to awesomeness. It's only a paper moon is probably the perfect example of that. Thus, the only thing it really matters is how many relative lines and scenes they have, hence how much money they make. Now, all of this is a roundabout way of saying that Tucker was going to be an A-lister. And if you'll notice, he is in a lot of scenes. I would struggle to give any real characterization for him because he's not really established as a character in this episode other than being Archer's friend. Now, I like, uh, I hope I'm going to pronounce this right, Connor Trenier. I do. I like him a lot. All I'm going to say is Stargate Atlantis, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about there. So, you know, I'm with it, and I do think they do good things with Tucker in Season 3 and 4. But right now I'm just looking and I'm going, okay... Scotty had more character than this guy, and Scotty didn't have a lot of scenes back in TOS, so what the heck am I looking at here? But they had the three big three, they had the big three, they had James, uh, you know, James Conway, and they had talented actors, and talented creative staff, and tons of money, and tons of effort. Oh, writing! Right, we need to write the episode! Duh, okay. Uh, who should we get for writing staff? Um, well... Braga and Berman were sitting down, coming up with the broad strokes of the story ideas, and Berman Berman came up with the idea of, why don't we just write this ourselves? This was a mistake. Rick Berman... Okay, I know I have a, a, a thing for hating Rick Berman, and I don't apologize for it because he's a horrible human being, but... The fact of the matter is, I will always acknowledge that he was our scumbag. He was. He was one of the biggest reasons why we got TNG, DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise. Why we got the movies that we got. He was one of the biggest influential reasons, the hard financial reasons, who went to bat for Star Trek amongst all the other producers and all the other executives so that we could have a slot. So we, as in Star Trek, so Star Trek, could have a slot at that table. Because when TNG got started, they didn't get that slot. They barely were clinging to just the edges of life. And Berman went to bat for Star Trek. I will always give him credit for that, okay? He was our scumbag. He's not a writer, though. (laughs) He is... I'm, I'm pretty sure I could write better than him, and I am a terrible writer. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is Braga. Okay, I actually like Braga. I have the the more I have studied Star Trek, the more I have dug into the behind the scenes, the more I actually have a great deal of sympathy and empathy for Braga, and the more I think that he's actually pretty legit, and he probably went through some hell when it came to Star Trek, especially Voyager, which is exactly my point. 
He was brought on in TNG, did some great episodes, was then pigeonholed into Voyager and told to churn out episode after episode after episode. Experienced burnout, finally got the chance to mainline Voyager after like four other people did it, and then experienced even more burnout while simultaneously having to work on Enterprise alongside Rick Berman, who was long past the point at which his, he was actually a positive influence on Star Trek at this point in history. So, um... Yeah, I, I would not have picked that duo to write this episode. And I I keep banging on this point, forgive me. Because it, it, I really feel if they had brought in a talented writing team, team, for an episode this big, you need to break this sucker in a croup. But I feel if they brought in a good writing team and really hired this out, this would probably be exactly what they wanted it to be. Because at every step of the way, everyone involved in this, the director, the writer, the producer which is also the writer, um, most of the cast members, the visual effects members, the, the, ca the design people, the actual executive producers, everyone said the same thing. We want this to be the biggest and the best Star Trek pilot ever. The stated intent was to take all those lessons that we've already learned from TNG, DS9, and Voyager and cram them into this. And if they had nailed the script, I think they would have. The actors are competent and actually do a decent job with what they have. The visual effects are actually really good. The stated intent of several aspects of things, which I'll discuss as we go through, is excellent. There are several ways in this show is actually more grounded than previous Star Treks, and in fact will remain grounded, at least for the duration of most of this episode. It's probably telling that the usage of a transporter is actually considered a big plot-critical moment. It's the conclusion of the climax, is using a transporter on a human being because it was so risky and so dangerous and it hadn't been done. That's, I'm with all of that. It's just, the script is crap. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't, even, I don't mean to say that, but it's so... <sighs> Let's talk about the episode proper. So, what's the very first thing this episode does? Well, the first thing it does is, is it establishes one of the key points that the writers wanted. They wanted there to be conflict with the Vulcans, and they wanted to establish the Klingons, because the Vulcans and the Klingons are the two biggest Star Trek races. Okay, you know what? I am completely with that. I am. And I will explain both of why as we go further into this. Not right now. Hopefully I'll remember to do that, because <laughs> sometimes I forget these little things. But they wanted to have the Vulcans be kind of an antagonistic force. Now, I can still see that working. However, in order to make Vulcans antagonistic and not be irritating and, frankly, juvenile, that's going to take some time and work and care, none of which are present here. So the first thing we see is Ambassador Pointy, an actual racial slur, although somewhat a mild one, put by young Archer. Okay. The very next thing we see is a Klingon crash landing on Earth. Um, now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and pause for a second to talk about something called suspension of disbelief. Okay? Now, suspension of disbelief is something that exists with fiction pretty much regardless, because precious few fiction, very, very rarely, is there fiction where this is not necessary to some extent. So how far, this is just for me, but how far I'm willing to bend with regards to the suspension of disbelief, depends entirely on the overall quality of the work. And, and that's really what it boils down to. I like it, therefore I'm willing to bend more. 
shrug. I, I, I think I've made this very clear over many years of analyzing fiction on the internet. That means, by total contrast, when I am not with a work, I am substantially less willing to bend. To wit. Uh, so our good Klingon friend Klang is actually, has just stopped off in Rigel X, or Rigel 10. I don't think they actually say it in this episode, so we'll just call it Rigel 10, because it's Roman numerals. And having stopped off at Rigel 10, which is this whole little established base thing, I'll talk more about Rigel in a bit, he then is attacked and chased by Suliban to Earth, where he crash lands on Earth. Now, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but space is fairly large, and Earth is not in the direction of Kronos, which is a bit of a distance. This is one of the reasons they're considering sending the Enterprise after Kronos, because the Enterprise is a fast ship, or 4.5, and thus, that's a bit of a trip. So, how exactly, like, how did we get from point A to point B here? This is never addressed or explained, and of course it never will be, because it's one of those, well, because plot moments. Now, I know what because plot feels like. As a writer, who is a terrible, awful writer, I know exactly what it feels like to be like, well, I need these three mages to be together. This is an actual thing. I was just thinking about this last night. I need these three mages to be together. But I don't want to just because plot that. So what I did was I sat down and started figuring out exactly how I could get these three people, uh, one from Pakistan, one from Brazil, and one from the United States, in order to interact with each other, how they could meet and how they could coordinate. That became part of the backstory that I was developing and helped to inform part of the storytelling. I don't think Berman and Braga did that. I think they were just like, Rigel's nearby in interstellar terms, and they're here. Sure. Either way, he crash lands and runs off through the cornfield. And this is where I'm going to start. I'm going to be yo-yoing on this episode so much, for, so forgive me. I'm actually completely with the approach to the intro, if not the actual logic of the scripting. We've got what looks like a completely ordinary farm. The, the kind you could go drive out right now and see if you happen to live here in the States. And a guy with a shotgun, kind of, just with an energy you know, a pack, so it's a plasma shotgun. Okay, or a plasma rifle or whatever. But it looks like an actual rifle, you know, where you're kind of in the in-between stance. And he's just wearing normal clothing. And he's got a silo. And there's a Klingon running through the field. I'm actually with all of this. Again, kind of establishing that point. And one of the things I like most about the idea of Enterprise being before they had all of that tech and all of that advancement and all of that infrastructure, all of that advancement, all that everything that would form the Federation, even as of TOS's era, which was still the frontier, but it was a frontier with a lot of backing. The Federation was a galactic power by TOS. Whereas here, the Federation doesn't even exist yet. That'll be season four. So I'm with this concept. The episode also does uh, several things very smartly, very quickly. Um, we establish uh, the we establish the Sulaban being capable of squiggling under the door. And we establish that the Klingon is get, get shot and is like, oh, fuh, fuh, fuh. which I know this sounds like a strange thing, but for Star Trek fans, the fact that the Klingon barks at the farmer, Mr. Moore, haha, is an extremely important plot point. It means we can't understand him. Now, as we'll find out later, this is because this is actually first contact with the Klingon. Surprise! But for someone watching this show for the very first time, it very quickly establishes that the universal translator is not in play, which it's not. There is no universal translator. 
There are translating algorithms, which take time and effort to work, and a translating expert, which is brought on the ship specifically for this, but that's it. Again, good point. I'm with that. Then the intro plays. When I was watching this with my mom the very first time on the TV, I, I can picture it. I can picture the room. I was tired. I, I was working. I was working full-time to put myself through college, and I was tired all the time, but I still made time for these little moments with my mom. And um, so we're sitting there watching. I'm tired. I'm leaning against the thing. The, the intro starts, and she's just, she just gets up out of the chair, and I'm like, what? I'm out. <laughs> I'm done. Mom. She was actually just grabbing a snack. But like she wanted to make the demonstration of this. This is the intro. All right, hands up. How many of you like the intro of Enterprise? How many of you don't like the intro of Enterprise? No judgment either way. I'm going to go and say two things about it, and I'm just going to move on. Well, three things. So thing number one, if you mute it, I like it a lot. I really do. It's an excellent visual intro. A little long, but it's still very good from a visual perspective. So credit on that front. The second thing I want to comment on is Archer's theme, which if you recognize is actually a remix of which I use for my intros for my Enterprise videos. Archer's theme works a lot better for that intro than uh, whatever the hell the name of that stupid song is with lyrics that I can't think of right now. You gotta have faith! You know, that, that song, you know. Psh. Seriously, I'm, I'm sure most of you have actually seen the YouTube video. It's the Enterprise intro, but with Archer's theme. But if you ever just watch it, mute it, and just play a copy of Archer's theme yourself, which is a little bit of a different take from the video I just referenced, it works so much better. In fact, I would give special praise to Dennis McCarthy, who I've been up and down on when it comes to opinions over the years, for doing an excellent job with Archer's theme. It's a good song and works very well for this. And they decided to go with generic sitcom episode music. This brings me to the third thing I have to talk about, or fourth, or whatever we're up to now. Near as I can tell, this is speculation, but near as I can tell, this was part of a deliberate push in order to expand Star Trek's audience base, to try and cast the net further out to grab more people. Now, that is not necessarily a bad idea in its own right, but it is also very easy to get it wrong. See Mass Effect 3 for an example of this. And this is not the only thing they did. Some of you probably remember, this was not originally called Star Trek Enterprise. In the middle of Season 3, I believe, is the first time they finally actually started calling this Star Trek Enterprise. It was just called Enterprise. In fact, I actually know people personally who, when this was coming out, were confused as to what this was, and if this was a spin-off or an alternate universe or whatever, right? Because a lot of the marketing was trying to push this away from Star Trek. Thus, my speculation. I think that this intro song was being done in a sitcom way, specifically as part of that push. One final note about the intro song. I don't like the song. Okay, let me just get that out there. But I, someone, and you know who you are if you're watching this, has actually asked me to bother to listen to it every episode as we go through. Now, I do that normally. The Voyager, uh, Babylon 5, <laughs> TNG, and DS9 intros, you know, the music that plays during the opening crawl and the credits. I've listened to those every single episode I've covered. All 200, 300, whatever we're up to at this point. 
So that would be normal for me. I didn't plan to do that this time around. I plan to just skip forward to the episode proper. Because screw that song. But I, it has been requested of me that I actually watch and listen to it. And there's really only two things that are going to happen there. It's going to get more grating or it's going to grow on me. We'll see. Moving on. So, we see Archer in the shuttle pod, the inspection pod with uh, Tucker. But like I said, Tucker's in a lot of scenes, just there's not a lot to him. <laughs> and they're inspecting the ship. And the first thing we see is that Archer's in this kind of coat with a little bit of a like an informal button-down jacket. Kind of like what I'm wearing, actually, funnily enough. Random thought of the day. I kind of wish they'd kept that costume style. I mean, they have the Enterprise formal uniforms, and those are fine. I mean, they're not great, but they're fine. I personally prefer the, the DS9 late uniforms. You know, the ones with kind of the gray and, you know, the, what the TNG uniforms evolved into, basically. But the uniforms are fine, but I kind of wish we had more of a casual usage of clothing in this show. Because, well, they do that in this episode, and it works really well. Not only does it add a weird layer of believability to it, but it also helps to keep things grounded. How often do you see Picard wandering around in a jeans and a t-shirt, basically? And yet we see Archer at several scenes dressed just in completely normal clothes. And Hoshi and Tucker and so forth and so on. And I think that helps. Again, this isn't really Starfleet yet. I mean, it is. You know, it, it's the fleet. It's, it's the beginnings of it. But that's exactly my point. They're not there yet. And I think that adds to that overall tone. My opinion. We'll see how much they do that going forward. Because I know they don't really do it much by the time we get to Season 3. <clears throat> So, we also see two other things that are established very quickly and efficiently. First of all, that warp 4.5 is very fast. As an aside, I like that as well. Obviously, you know, you, how fast fast is depends on where you are in history, right? Like right about now, being able to cross the Atlantic in a jetliner is like, yeah, okay, that's normal. But imagine that about mm, 100 years ago, right? And go back another hundred years and a steamboat crossing the pond would be a big deal and so forth and so on. So, again, still helping to establish that tone. Still good. 4.5 equals fast. That is also even plot relevant in this case. We also establish that Arch is a little bit of a micromanager and more of an engineer than a captain. Now, I hope this isn't a recurring theme, but all I'm going to say is that Archer is not a good captain. And I'm not sure if I like that or not. We'll talk more about that later. So, Vulcans! <sighs> I have a lot of notes about this, so I'm just going to pull my notes up directly, if you'll forgive me. This is what we call slanted storytelling. And by we, I mean I, because I'm the only one I know who does this. Slanted storytelling is when you're trying to frame something to make the audience think something or feel something. Um, the, the, the Vulcans are just consistently portrayed as arrogant and uppity and irritating and you're not supposed to root for them. Now, before you think I'm being too harsh on the Vulcans, I also want to mention that the other guys there, the human admirals and other members of Starfleet or whatever, they're not any better, except for Forrest. Forrest, the only one who has, seems to have a decent head on his shoulders and, I mean, Vaughn Armstrong, Armstrong, so, you know... <clears throat> But they're all just kind of dicks. So everyone's just kind of being a dick to each other. 
This then leads to an interesting tidbit where one of the Vulcans says that if not for the fact that we leapt to your defense diplomatically with the Klingons, the Klingons would already be trying to attack you. Archer then completely ignores that and charges in and just tries to get off moralizing because they're going to execute, that is to say, you know, pull the plug, on the Klingon just it, that... I'm trying to think how to phrase this properly, and I'm failing at it. Archer ignores reality and decides to moralize. Now, I want to like that, but I don't. And you're probably thinking, Laura, what is there to like that about that? Because he's prejudiced. Archer is prejudiced against the Vulcans. This is established in literally the first shot of the entire show. And he himself admits it. Twice in this episode. So he is obviously inclined to be a dick to them. What irritates me is the way it is portrayed as if Archer is in the right. That's kind of aggravating. I mean, Archer literally outright threatens DePaul with physical harm. I want you to imagine walking up to your military ally and saying, I'm holding myself back from beating your ass right now. What? The politics of this situation are also surprisingly complex and intimate and are completely unaddressed. We have a situation which is effectively accidental first contact, not just with some random alien race, but with a superior alien power an actual nation that we've never encountered before, that the Vulcans have some encounter with, and they're trying to run interference with us, for us, not only because of the moralistic reasons they're doing so, but obviously because they don't really benefit from the Klingons deciding to, to ground Earth into paste. The Klingons would also grind Earth into paste if they decided to go to war right now. But at the same time, the humans are understandably feeling rather upset about this whole thing because they're not really being put in on the loop on this whole thing. What should have been happening here is the Vulcans reaching out to the humans and saying, Hey, by the way, um, so you just did a no-no without really meaning to? It's not your fault. We're reaching out to them to try and keep this thing from igniting into a shooting war. Because we don't want a shooting war, and neither do you. And then the humans could have worked with them. But instead what we have is this slanting. Look... Look at the framing here. Archer barges in to this scene, constantly constantly contests the Vulcan position, is never really opposed on any of the points he makes, which are not good points other than by T'Pol, who is the only one who makes an actual counter-argument and rebuff to him. He responds to her with the threat of physical violence. Then Saval leaves embarrassed as if the humans scored a victory here. And Forrest even gives him an attaboy for doing so. Later on in this episode, there's this bit where Archer is amazingly rude to T'Pol. But, but they're doing the send-off ceremony. And it wouldn't go amiss in a random comedy flick. I'm going to fail explaining this, so bear with me here. There's... The plucky, you know, the, the the main characters, and they're at summer camp or something. And they're just, you know, you, they just don't want to have to play by your rules, man, because you're just a stuck-up square, dude. And they're, and 
they, when they end up successfully pulling off their pranks or doing their heist or whatever it is they're actually doing, the, the people who are all stuck up and uppity, they're left with egg on their face. Maybe they get mud flung into their face, literally, or something. You know, it's always something, right? That is exactly the manner in which it is portraying the humans as the plucky protagonists and the Vulcans as the uppity, stubborn, you know, antagonists of this comedy flick. The, the scene, the, the, the shots, the camera angles, and the inferences as it goes from Forrest, who's talking about this thing, to the Vulcans, who are just, who are like, and then it cuts to the humans who are all applauding, and then it cuts to the Vulcans, who are all upset, yes, well, I guess we'll allow you to have this one thing, Robot House. The slanting is so severe, I, I, I got a bit of a neck crick watching this episode. So forgive me for banging on about this point, because I feel like I can see the ideas they wanted, but the script doesn't actually support it. And again, this is why I bash this script so much. So, uh, then we cut to a few quick character establishing shots, which don't really establish much. We do have Dominic Keating, who's awesome. Uh, when he was doing one of his initial run-throughs, he was supposed to get a, a plasma coolant part to talk with, and instead he got, well, of course mine's not here right now, but he got a water bottle. Apparently, I, I don't know if this is a reference or not, but in the episode, he was supposed to get plasma coils, and he does not. References are nice. Although it doesn't speak well for the Federation. Ah, God, I don't know what to call these people. Let's call them the humans. Does that sound good? It doesn't speak well for the humans, at the fact that this is their one ship that they're getting ready right now, and they're screwing it up. I guess that's just life and bureaucracy and military, but still, not a really good sign. Maybe the Vulcans have a point. Hmm. Then they show the, the idea of changing artificial gravity to be different variances of Earth norm. You know, 1.0, Earth sea level. That's kind of a cool idea, too. And the kind of thing I wish they would explore more, but instead... All they really do with it is have the, the the dead zone. And we have more scenes with Tucker where he doesn't really do anything other than be on camera and talk. And I hate to keep banging on this point, but I've talked about this before. There are some characters who are non-characters, and it's a bad thing. I don't want to name examples, but it's it's when there's a character who isn't a character. There's no characterization there. And there should be, because they talk and walk and act and do... It's just there's nothing there. I'm sure you could think of examples off the top of your head if you were to think about that for a second in gaming and movies and in shows. And that's Tucker. He's there. I really hope they start to flesh him out before we get to season three. Anyways, then we see Linda Park. Uh, sorry, uh, Hoshi Sato, who plays... Who is played by... <laughs> Hoshi is playing Linda Park. It explains everything. Linda Park is playing Sato. Now, as an aside, I love this idea. Having an actual linguistics expert with a very finely tuned ear, which actually comes up in this episode, on the ship. Great idea. Once again, kind of flinging the universal translator out the window and helping to emphasize the whole, we're, we have no idea what we're doing and we're just getting started. You know, this isn't even the frontier. This is the complete unknown. This is the total, never even really left our system kind of a thing. This is a big deal. In a future episode, the crew will actually set records repeatedly for 
furthest distance from Earth from, of, of anything, which, which again helps to emphasize just how much they are new at all of this. So the Sato, Sato idea, I'm totally with. So then we get to the ship, and it turns out the Vulcans are giving them maps in exchange for having an observer on board. Naturally, Tucker, who was the only person who was more overtly racist, excuse me, specious, against Vulcans than Archer, naturally assumes that she's a spy. You know it's bad when Archer's telling you to rein it in a little bit. Either way, <clears throat> this then leads to the introduction of to Paul as part of the crew. I have a note here in my notes that says, am I the only one who remembers that they're allies? S still, hold, hear me out for a second. I'm not against the idea of them being so antagonistic to the Vulcans, and to Paul in particular. Why? Because Archer is specious, you know, prejudiced, and they're new at this. This is political. I, I, that, let me rephrase that. This is a matter of political intrigue. This is to spacefaring nations who are ostensibly allies, but their reputation, their relationship has been very iffy for a long time. And the Vulcans are aware of more of the greater galactic community than the humans are. For example, the fact that not only do they know who the Klingons are, but they had enough pre-existing connections with the Klingons to already reach out within a day in order to try and smooth over things diplomatically. That says a lot for how much the Vulcans were already aware of the galactic community. The humans are not. And you can kind of see how this relationship is something that, honestly, I'm actually okay with. In fact, one of the themes of this episode, which is terribly presented because of bad scripting, is the idea of humans being the kids and Vulcans being the adults. Now, the Vulcans have been bad parents up till now, in my opinion. In fact, one of the biggest key points of the entire episode is this bit where Tucker yells at Paul by insisting that we need to be allowed to fail. Because, in my opinion, that is what a parent, a good parent, should do. They should allow their children to fail. Within reason, with safety nets, to prevent the actually bad from coming to pass. But what the Vulcans have been doing has been far more helicoptering. Being a helicopter parent. No, 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 You stay here. You stay here. You do this. And several of the lines of dialogue that T'Pol in particular give make it seem like what the Vulcans are trying to do is convert the humans to surikism or whatever you're going to call it. You know, the, the, the very ideas of logic and that as their, let's call it what it is, religion. And the whole clamping yourself down and emotional control thing that the Vulcans practice. So I'm kind of with this idea, just not the execution of it. And again, we'll see how this goes going forwards. <clears throat> so, then we see Porthos, who is a dog on a spaceship. Back up, back up, back up. I have no problem with pets being on the Enterprise D, because the Enterprise D is an apartment complex in space. A luxury apartment complex in space. So, okay, pets, sure. I wouldn't buy pets in TOS, never mind Enterprise. Like, the very idea of keeping a dog on this kind of a ship, that's just, that's gonna be smell, that's gonna be cleanup, that's gonna be issues upon issues upon issues. I know, I know. I, this is, this, there's no anti-dog feeling here. It could have been a cat and I would have the exact same response. This is not a ship for pets. Moving on. 
So, then we have the comedy moment I actually mentioned earlier. Archer is extremely rude to Paul. And we have the Cochrane send-off. Quick side note, I'm kind of with that. I haven't seen Discovery or Picard yet, so I don't know if this is true universally. But every single Star Trek show up to Enterprise has been sent off with someone from the previous shows. Uh, we had DeForest Kelly as McCoy in TNG. We had Picard in DS9. We have Cork in Voyager. And we have Dr. Cochran in Enterprise. So I'm, I'm kind of like, I kind of like that. I kind of like that little send off, you know, the, the sending things forward and giving them the, the good shove or whatever you want to think of that, right? I'm probably biased because the Picard and Cisco scenes in Emissary are actually really, really awesome. And the Cork scenes with Kim and Harry or Kim and Harry, with Tom and Harry, are also really good over in Caretaker. And, of course, how could I forget seeing DeKelly, arguably one of the last times I actually saw DeKelly, uh, of course, DeKelly in uh, Encounter at Farpoint. So, I'm with it. And if not for the stupid comedy shtick with the Vulcans, it would be a really good scene. Anyways. So then the ship starts to head off. Do-do-do-do. Do do do, and this has become Indiana Jones for some reason. And then we see Future Guy. <laughs> He's evil. All right, we gotta talk about this for a second. First of all, this is our first introduction to John Fleck, who plays Silic. John Fleck is awesome. He's done some actually great stuff on Star Trek before. He was in DS9 and in TNG, and he is a perfect actor for Silic. And He's probably my favorite recurring antagonist on this show, really. Unless we count some asterisk characters who aren't really antagonists, that's getting into eh, territory. So, for antagonists who tend to stay antagonistic the whole show, Silic's probably my favorite. And I think a lot of that's down to Fleck and his performance. He's really good at what he does. And he manages to... He's not quite to the level of Mark Alemo, but he manages to be charismatic and enjoyable while still kind of being a slime ball. But then we see Future Guy. I mentioned him. He's played by uh, Horan? Whatever. James Horan, who I've also referenced already. And he's evil. Very evil. The last time I looked into Enterprise was many years ago. It was actually for something completely unrelated. Uh, I think it was for a Voyager thing. So it's like six or seven years ago at this point. And... At that point in history, there wasn't really anything for Future Guy. So I was in, I actually had this joke in the back of my mind. Where I was going to say, let me tell you the big in-depth lore of Future Guy. And I was just going to sit here quietly for several seconds. Turns out there is a little bit of something that has since been revealed. So hear me out for a second. Back in Season 1, Braga and Berman both, uh, in interviews, at conventions would say things, sometimes hinting, sometimes deliberately misleading, about Future Guy. I know he's called the humanoid got male or whatever the proper term is, but we're just going to call him Future Guy. It's a lot easier to tell who we're talking about. I mean, they even started calling him Future Guy, for God's sakes. Anyways. So, <clears throat> and they would say, you know, maybe he's Romulan. Maybe we're going to go Romulan with that. Uh, sometimes they would say, we don't actually know who he is. We haven't decided who he is yet. Or, well, we're thinking of taking this in a different direction. Now, based on my own behind-the-scenes research, one thing is true. They had this idea for the Temporal Cold War, which I'll talk about later, and they had no idea what to do with it. They just wanted there to be a arc hook across the show. Now, for the record, that's a good idea, 
The problem is they didn't do anything with it, but I'm getting ahead of myself. <clears throat> so they wanted this arc hook. I could believe that they didn't decide initially who Future Guy was and made up their mind later. However, in much more recent times, Braga has con gone forward on Twitter, you can look this up, and admitted who Future Guy is. You ready for this? It's Archer. The whole idea was that Jonathan Archer in the future interferes with the past in order to try and alter things so that his younger self doesn't screw with everything so that he doesn't have the terrible future that Future Guy is dealing with. Sitting back and thinking about several of the episodes of this show that deal with the Temporal Cold War, and Future Guy in particular, the more I think about it, the more I'm kind of... I, I kind of think that that actually was something they had in mind early on. I really do. And given the direction that the show eventually took, it's obvious that they decided to take that and throw it out the window along with the Temporal Cold War itself, which was probably the right call, because, again, didn't actually plan anything out. But I just wanted to share that while we were here, since that's the big hook. That's the danger moment. We were going after the Klingons and Future Guy, a.k.a. Future Archer. Moving on. So then Phlox gets his first real introduction. And he was actually in an earlier scene, but this is his actual introduction scene. Now hear me out for a second. I like the idea of an alien doctor who has a menagerie of animals and plants to help heal the shipmates and, and people over there on. And the reason why is because that makes perfect sense to me for the exact same thing I keep banging on about this entire rumination. They don't have the establishment. They don't have the infrastructure. They don't have decades, if not centuries, of incredibly advanced medical tech. They can't bring someone back from the dead with nanites. Instead, what they have is a leech, which, you know, cauterizes the wound and helps make it so that your skin can start to reheal underneath it. I'm kind of down for that idea. And again, it helps add to that overall tone. I'm not sure what I think of Phlox himself. We'll, we'll get back to that. So then we get to Mayweather. You notice I haven't talked about him a lot. Travis's character is mostly, so far, uh, he has already been to space. This means he kind of gets to be the pseudo-exposition guy, because he gets to talk about things that are related to living in space, and that's kind of neat, and I sure hope he develops more character in the future. <sighs> this then leads to dinner with the trio. I want to talk about this briefly, because this is going to sound so weird, but hear me out for a second. One of the stated ideas walking into Broken Bow was to take all of the lessons they learned from the previous three shows, and at this point three movies, and put them together into making the best Star Trek they possibly could. I, I can already hear some of you laughing as I'm saying that, but hear me out. I'm kind of completely with that idea, because they have, right? They've already got all this experience and all this work. Why not apply themselves? Why not use that expertise? This is expansion effect in a nutshell. And if you don't know what expansion effect is, I'll point you to the Loriums and move on. But what we have here is kind of a reverse expansion effect because they're just making the same mistakes over and over again. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself, so let me talk about the dinner specifically. What does the dinner have to do with any of this? Chess. Poker. Darts. Every one of the previous uh, Star Treks has had something that became kind of an establishing, repeating character motif. It was designed for something... 
let me state, let me rewind that. In all of these cases, the way it was utilized was as a way to develop and establish character. To really have characters interact with each other and to see them bounce off each other and just, just to be down to earth people talking to people scenes. Originally, chess, oh, actually, sorry, sorry, sorry. Originally, poker, the poker scenes were added to TNG as filler. And it became a regular character element as we went through, as I discussed during the TNG ruminations. The dartboard served a similar function. It was just like, yeah, let's throw a dartboard in. Why not? But then that became a regular element of several characters, most notably O'Brien and Bashir. I don't know if chess ever was designed to be that over on TOS. I actually haven't covered TOS yet from my perspective. I'm doing all of Enterprise first, then TOS next. So we'll see if that actually is a thing going forward in TOS. But either way, and I know I'm skipping over Voyager for obvious reasons. <laughs> because that's because it's the magic meeting room. That's that's actually what Voyager's thing was for some reason. But in all these cases, that's where characters would interact with just to be characters. So, dinner. The difference is this time they clearly planned it out in advance rather than just kind of stumbling into it and turning it into a thing. And I'm pretty sure this is Braga's idea in particular because Braga was the one who actually took poker over on TNG and turned it into a thing. In fact, he made an entire episode centered around a poker game. Uh, cause and effect. Remember that one? It's one of my favorite episodes. So, does the dinner actually work? Yeah. At least in this episode. At first I was just like, ugh, because most of it was just Tucker and Archer being specious, which is uncomfortable and awkward and just, I don't want to watch that, right? It's like, okay, yep, uh-huh, uh-huh. But what happens over the course of the episode, or the course of the dinner, excuse me, is first of all, T'Pol fails at understanding how to breadstick, and then she mentions that Vulcans don't touch their food with their hands, which is probably a load of bull, but there's going to be a lot of loads of bull regarding Vulcans throughout the course of this show, so let's just move on. Either way, she doesn't want to eat with her hands. Okay, I understand that. I prefer using utensils too. No problem. And she instead decides to use a knife very carefully to fork a bit of the breadstick and eat that. And of course, when the food is brought out by chef, don't worry, we know you're a vegetarian. Now, at first, it starts to lose me for a second, because she preaches. And God, I hate preaching. I hate it when someone just preaches at me. So she, she's like, ah, oh, carnivores, I can't believe you call yourself sophisticated and still eat meat. If you want to be a vegetarian, fine. You know, no, no judgment, I don't care, do whatever. Don't tell me what to do, okay? I eat meat, and fruit, and vegetables, and occasionally sweets. And seltzer water. Here, look. It's right here. It's actually empty right now. <laughs> it's probably why I'm so dry right now. The point is, I don't like that kind of a thing. So the episode starts to lose me again for a second with the dinner scene. But then, this is kind of weird. She, he, Tucker makes a valid point. He points out that humanity has dragged itself from World War III into where they're at now in the space of about two and a half generations. That is an incredibly impressive feat. And she even acknowledges this, but the funny thing is she then gives a good argument back. We need to make sure you don't regress. That stuck with me for some strange reason. Now, obviously, this is a prequel. We know that humanity is not going to regress. But ignore that for a second. Ignore all the future and just look at the moment. There's no guarantee. What this effectively is, is a golden age, to use a Civilization Six term. 
Humanity has entered a golden age of prosperity and all that fun stuff. And golden ages, historically speaking, tend to end. In fact, the, the humanity's golden age will end and will not come back until we get to what I call to the golden era, right before TNG gets started. So there's no guarantee that humanity will continue to be doing all right. You know, having gotten rid of the horrific problems of war and pestilence and disease and crime and all the other things, to turn Earth into the paradise that it will eventually become. Now, we know it will eventually get there, but she is perfectly logical and correct in thinking that that's not the guarantee that it is portrayed as. And she is the one who then reaches out to them, metaphorically speaking. Like I said, she holds the thing down uses the knife to pull the breadstick, and she says, with concentrated and applied effort and discipline, eventually we can have results. It works better than it should. We'll see what I think of the dinner scenes going forwards. I'm to page three now. God, how long is this video? So, moving forward, we have our first real action sequence, not counting the intro. You always got to start on an action sequence. Um... Hoshi actually tells T'Pol to go to hell in Vulcan. That's nice, and she's very jumpy. Um, and then she's brought down to try and talk to uh, Kang, to try and discuss things with him. This scene does not work for me at all, and the reason why is actually very simple. Archer is kind of a dick in the whole scene. Let me rewind a second. Hoshi is obviously not used to being on a spaceship. Okay, I'm with that. And she's jumpy. Okay, I'm with that too. And obviously she's very nervous because she's interacting with an alien species she's never met before and a language she's never encountered before. All of these things make sense. She's obviously still good at her job. She is the one who ends up figuring out several of the aspects of Klingonese, or just Klingon, as, as this episode progresses. So she obviously knows her stuff, but she comes across a little Barkley-ish. I'm with all of that. But you know what pissed me off about Barkley? Riker. You know what I'm talking about. And Archer is the Riker of this situation. He scowls at her. Archer just scowls at her the whole scene. And actually acts irritable. Like, ah. And you can just tell he's just kind of, oh, God, this is sucked. I expect perfect results the first time, every time. <sighs> I wanted to smack him. Not for the first time in this episode. And assuredly not for the last. <sighs> this then leads to the EMP thing. Because the Sulaban apparently have the ability to, to either use a dampening field or just a straight-up EMP, which will... This isn't an EMP, let's be honest with ourselves. Which just knocks out all power on the whole ship, including the backups. They even mention the backups don't come, up to, come back on. But their guns still work. And so do their flashlights. Also, the Sulaban have cloaking tech, because of course they do, both on a personal level and on a ship level. Huh. I'd like to say that this bothers me, but I think really the power thing is the only thing that bothers me that much. I feel like it was only done to try and emphasize the pseudo-horror nature of the scenes, right? You know, the Suleban crawling on the walls, and there's something here, Captain. Probably wouldn't have had the same effect if the lights were on and everything was fine. Except I think it totally would. Eject the power outage. Just have the ship pulled out of warp. I don't know, something destabilized our warp bubble. It's strange. Try to reestablish it. I don't know, there's something getting in the way of it. Meanwhile, the Suleban, who are cloaked, who sneak on, da, 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 and then they get out and they get away with Quang, right? 
I think that would have worked a lot better, personally, because it still emphasizes the, kill, the key point here. The Suliban have superior tech, if inferior numbers. You'll notice we do actually successfully kill one of the guys who comes on board, because there's only like three of them on one dinky little pod. And, of course, this helps to get the point of them having future tech involved. So, again, I'm kind of with it. Anyways. So, this then leads to, to Paul correctly pointing out issues with the mission, which then leads Archer to dragging her off to the side, ranting at her angrily, mentioning his daddy issues, because that's what they are, and then... Uh, just just kind of rants at her and is angry at her and is just kind of a dick. And this leads me to why Mum and I put this show down originally. Archer. He's not likable. At least not at this point in the show. Now, I will freely admit, I legitimately like the Archer we get by the end of Season 3 and throughout Season 4. I have rewatched those seasons several times for a good reason. But the Archer here, in my opinion, is not likable. Now, a character does not have to be likable, but when it's your main character, the main character you're playing as and interacting with all the time, they need to move out of that likability very, that unlikability very quickly. We'll see if Archer manages that in season one and season two. I don't know. Like I said, I barely remember these episodes. But by memory, I just looked at Archer and was like, God, you are just an unmitigated dick. I do not like you. This then leads to Tucker headbutting with T'Pol, still no characterization, and T'Pol going ahead and sharing info. Now, a couple things. First of all, the system they're going to is Rigel. I'll give you that one episode. That's pretty clever. Now you're probably thinking, huh? Or if you are a you know big, bigger trekker slash trekkie than I am, you're thinking, oh yeah. See, Rigel's actually a very recurring system slash species, which is meant to, mentioned many times in basically all the other Star Treks, uh, tracking all the way back to the original series in the Doomsday Device, or the Doomsday Machine, I can't remember what it's called. But uh, the, it, Rigel has been a recurring element of Star Trek for a really long time. It's often listed as one of the four closest systems to Earth, along with Vulcan and Andoria, and I can't remember the name of the third one, but it's the pig people. Anywho, we'll cover that in Season 4. So Rigel being the place that is so close to Earth, relatively speaking, and the place where he was interacting, okay, sure, good job episode. Hear me out for a second. Some of you may remember I was doing the lore runner version of Voyager all the way back in the day, and by popular vote you asked me to not do that. I say popular vote, it was the popular vote at the time. I have no idea if the audience of now would want me to do a lore runner rewrite or not. But at the time, you guys voted me for me to stop, so I did. In Enterprise, <laughs> I'm not going to do a whole rewrite, because I do these months and months and months in advance. Uh, from my perspective, it's June. No, it's not. It's July. God, it's July when I am recording this very episode, which will be going live in uh, April of next year. So I don't really have the opportunity to pull you in the same way. But, at the same time, I'm kind of curious if you guys would be interested in that. I'd be lo I would absolutely love to hear your guys' rewrites of Enterprise as we go. Legit. Uh, there's one gentleman who was doing kind of a headcanon rewrite of TNG as we went through that, and I, I was delightful. It was delightful to read through his comments as we went through. But here's my first rewrite. 
We know, thanks to something that Picard mentions during First Contact, the episode, not the movie, that First Contact with the Klingons was disastrous and led to conflict. We also know that in the first episode the Klingons were introduced in, which is uh, Day of the Dove, over in TOS, that they have had hostile interactions with the Klingons basically since word go. The idea of this leading to that hostility makes perfect sense. It doesn't actually lead to that hostility. In fact, that hostility will not come forward uh, until Discovery. But I love this idea of the fact that this mission, which Archer insists on doing, which humanity is thrusting for, and the Vulcans finally let, let the reins go just a little bit, is the mission that leads to conflict with the Klingons, which eventually leads to actual warfare. I love that idea. And that would be my biggest rewrite. Because, see, one of the things I like most about Archer is that he sucks at his job. No, I mean that sincerely. He is not a good captain, he is not a good diplomat, and he sucks in a fight, and he doesn't have an ounce of charisma. And I like that, because it really helps to emphasize that tonal point I keep getting down to, that they really are pushing the edges of the map and are amazingly unprepared for what they're getting into. I would have had this, if I was rewriting this, I would have this be a constant tonal undercurrent for almost every episode, culminating in the Zindi arc just showing over and over how humanity is utterly unprepared for any of this, which is why the Vulcans have been holding them back, and then trying to find some kind of in-between ground between, screw it, we're going to do it anyways, and you can't do anything whatsoever, and trying to find that middle ground being a recurring element in the background of the first two seasons, until finally something actually bad happens, which I've talked about many times. That would be the weapon. The Zindi weapon, the one that carves a nice big line into Earth and kills many, many people. Now, actually bad has happened, and now they got to deal with it. But by that point, they would have strengthened themselves and gotten more used to what they're doing and formed stronger bonds with the Vulcans to the point where they would be more ready to deal with actually bad. Because, I'm telling you right now, if the Zindi sent that thing now, that's game. It's over. Anywho, so, they have these really cool coats. I like the coats that they have. I kind of want to buy one, <laughs> assuming CBS even sells them, since CBS has this big thing about you can only actually wear our officially licensed things for anything we do, and blah, 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 and you'll notice that I'm not wearing a Star Trek uniform because I'm trying to avoid anything CBS-related as much as possible. Thank you, CBS, for making my job as hard as possible. Hashtag screw CBS. Moving on. Nice coats. Uh, we see the latex ladies, and obviously... You know, Reed is super into that. The only reason I'm even mentioning the latex ladies is a surprisingly large amount of the behind-the-scenes material I was reading, again, on the internet, because that's all I had, was about them. It's apparently a, a pair of twins who had to go on this... Ma I call them latex because they had to wear this massive latex outfit and have this whole thing, and it was apparently smelled terrible, and they had to do several different shots in order to make it work, and blah, 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 blah. But apparently it was a lot of work and effort to have sexy alien women there. Huh. Either way, <clears throat> they did a good job. You know, I'm with it. I'm with it. We get the first bit of actual characterization for Tucker when he's upset at the mother who is weaning the child with the, the oxygen or whatever. And 
we also get what is arguably the first really good scene for T'Pol. This is actually probably the second good scene for T'Pol. What she says, I don't remember how she phrases it, but what she says is something I believe in firmly. You need to know what you're interacting with to know when to act and when not to. I mean, I could summarize this by a quote that you're going to make fun of me for. You need to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk, know when to run. And I'm not memeing when I say that. That advice is legit useful in real life, in my opinion. And to Paul espousing the idea of learning so that you can understand when you need to get involved and when you don't is a very important skill in real life where we have, you know, the cultures and societies that we have going on now, never mind in an alien society where you have dozens, if not hundreds, if not millions, if not billions of different types of cultures amongst however many alien races. So I'm totally with that. Then Archer loses his first real fight. Yay! For fun, I'm going to keep track. Because I have a memory of Archer sucking at two things, speeches and fights. I want to see how badly he does here. Anywho, <clears throat> so then we have an action sequence, which I'm just brushing over because it's competently done. Uh, Saren comes in, kisses him, because we got to sex it up at least a little bit. And what we find out is that the Suliban are doing extensive false flag operations against the Great Houses back in the Klingon Empire. Quick side note. False flag operations against the Great Houses would probably be wildly successful given how much they are already built on conflict and internecine issues. Their political structure, which is something I've talked about extensively for years at this point, is something I can go on of for quite a while. I'm not going to do that right now. I'm just going to mention the one house, which I can never remember their name, but it's, this, it's the Spymaster House that was actually introduced in STO, which is a great idea, and hopefully we'll be able to deal with these kind of things. Either way. Moving on. Then, then, then. All right, here we go, here we go. You ready? Then she mentions the Temporal Cold War. So, I love the idea. I do. I absolutely adore the idea of multiple people across multiple timelines who have different levels and types of time travel. You know, Future Guy can only send an image back and information, whereas the Sphere Builders have limited access but can only send like an image of themselves, and so forth and so on. I love the idea of multiple factions utilizing time travel very carefully to ensure that things do not go bad. Because an actual temporal war, well, that would be basically what happens over in Doctor Who, isn't it? Now, the way they, the, I, I personally think Doctor Who doesn't really do a good enough job of portraying the actual war between the Daleks and the, uh, the Time Lords. They talk about it. They never actually portray it well, in my opinion. I suppose it's hard to portray time being warped and twisted over and over and over. But at the same time, I think that would be really freaking cool. And, if you think about it, just about everyone involved has a vested interest in not wanting a temporal war to go hot. So everyone has this time travel technology, and thanks to it, they all become aware of each other across the time, across the variety of time. Also, for these purposes, we have to assume type 2 time travel, not type 3, which is a problem because Star Trek already demonstrably has type 3 time travel, thanks to parallels, although it also has type 2 time travel, thanks to... Um, 
uh, yesterday's Enterprise, and Type 1 time travel thanks to uh, Time Zero, so whatever. Moving on. We have to assume a malleable singular timeline, otherwise this doesn't work at all. Because otherwise every time anybody does anything, all we're, all we're doing is branching out dozens of new different timelines, and nobody's actually interacting with anything with regards to their core original timelines. That's just kind of nonsense. Let's, let's just throw that out the window for a second, okay? Type 2 time travel. One timeline, but it's malleable. It's the most common, well, it's the most basic form of time travel there is. Everyone involved becomes aware of each other because of their own jots through time. So it's like, hey, but there's these people from further in the future, and hey, but there's these people from a bit, a few more centuries before me. And as a consequence of becoming aware of each other, they all just kind of come into a standstill because they all realize the same thing effectively independently. If we start altering time in ways that they don't like, they might then try to alter time in ways we don't like. And that's going to be messy. For the same exact reason nobody wanted the Cold War to go hot here in real life, nobody wants the Temporal Cold War to go hot. So everyone involved is still an opponent of each other, but desperately trying to ensure that things remain cool and try to make sure that we don't have nuclear Armageddon. That is to say, temporal Armageddon. That idea is brilliant. And I absolutely adore it, and I think there's so much they can do with it. <sighs> Everything I have read from a behind-the-scenes perspective has told me the same thing. They had that idea, and that's it. In fact, from what I have read and understood, they only had two of the factions written at this point, of what is probably, I think, uh, six by the end, something like that. And those two are, uh, you know, the future guys group with the Cillabon and the Cabal, and I can't think of his name. The, the Federation guy, Starfleet, from the future. That's it. Good guys, bad guys. And they didn't map any of this out, and they didn't design any of it in advance, and they didn't really know what to do with it. And if that sounds familiar, it should, because all I have to say to that is Maquis. Once again, the Maquis were a great idea. In, in well, okay, let me re, let me rewind that a second. The initial impetus for the Maquis is actually really really dumb, but at the same time, I love the idea of the frontier force of former Federation members who are fighting in a way that goes against the Federation ideals, in direct conflict with people that the Federation wants to be at peace with, because the Federation is so peace licking, boot licking, stupid that they're willing to sell out their own people and innocent lives. Whoa specifically in order to maintain a peace treaty that the other side isn't even maintaining. All of that I'm with. But, of course, what do they do with the Maquis? Now, DS9 did some stuff with the Maquis, but even on Deep Space Nine, as I complained about going through the DS9 ruminations, they kept being like, eh, and then there's the Maquis. No, it's not actually them. And then, oh yeah, we need to wrap up something. Um, Kill off the Maquis. Okay, there we go. Cool. And Voyager basically did nothing with them. I think there were, I'd say, three episodes of Voyager, which really addressed the Maquis as a thing, and that's it. And if that sounds familiar, well, here we are. And this is another reason why I can demonstrably say, this is me giving proof to my earlier statement, that they didn't learn the lessons of the previous shows. That they had the ability to, to come up with ideas, but not follow through on them, and that carried forward into Enterprise, and in my opinion, that's one of the biggest nails in the coffin that terminated this show. This really could have been one of the greatest Star Trek shows, and it really could have been the, the revival that Star Trek needed at the time. I, I believe that, legitimately. 
So they have some good construction going on. They drop the bombshell of the Temporal Cold War. Then they move immediately on to action so they can't properly explain things. Then Archer's a bad captain by insisting on staying behind to fight for himself with guns akimbo, because of course he does, while everyone else rushes off to safety. This is a stupid decision. It's very Shatnerian. Or Kirkian? Hmm. But it is still stupid. And if we're being honest, Kirk, well, he was good in a fight. He could rely on his fists and his brain in order to work his way through most situations. Archer has neither. Again, Archer is in over his head, so I don't really mind this. I'm just pointing it out, because this is more establishment of how Archer doesn't know what he's doing. This then leads to the decon chamber. <sighs> Alright. Up till now, as much as this episode has kind of yo-yoed back and forth in quality, overall I would call this positive. This is not going to be a lamentation, obviously, see the background. The decon chamber, I wanted to lament just about the decon chamber. On the one hand, it's a great idea, because they don't have the automatic filter in the transporters, because they're not even using the transporters, and they need to make sure that certain things don't get through. They even name drop, like, a specific fungus that's on YouTube, or whatever. So you need to check each other and stay in the decon chamber. Okay, yeah, I'm with that. Do you have to get down to your skivvies and have super long lingering close-up shots of both of them, by the way. I feel like this is how they got away with this. They're like, don't worry, we'll show him off and her off. That'll make it okay. So we got to show off both sexy bods. And, I mean, Jolene Blaylock is plenty attractive, and frankly, I wish I looked like Mr. Trenier. But what the crap is this nonsense? I know, I know. Sexy has always been a part of Trek. I always, I always keep repeating that to remind people of it, because as much as I am a Puritan you know, no thank you kind of a person. The fact of the matter is, this goes back to TOS, as we'll be covering alongside this. But in my honest opinion, this is stupid. Because the decon chamber kind of is the other dinner scene thing for Enterprise. It's a bit where characters get together to talk and hash out character moments while sexily rubbing gel on each other and getting near naked, being able to see both nipple and bulge for both her and him, respectively. <sighs> Nevertheless, what really pisses me off is this is probably the best character interaction between T'Pol and Tucker in the whole episode. I know, right? Because he makes the point I've already made to you. Humanity needs to be allowed to fail. The whole helicopter parenting, all of that, that's this scene. This is when that really comes to the foreground, and he calls her out for it directly. She then spends the next period of time effectively changing her mind. Okay, I will assist. And I like that attitude. Because it's not about, I'm going to do it for you, and it's not about, I'm going to prevent you from doing it. Both of which are in her power, by the way. Instead, what she does is she helps. I'm with that. We then have a shot of Jonathan Archer in his underwear and his bulge. And I wouldn't call attention to it again, except this shot goes on for several minutes, and it's really obvious, because the shot makes sure that it's always in the camera. I don't really want to look at Scott Bakula's junk. For those of you who do, here you go. It's like 37 minutes in the episode, something like that. Uh, there's other ways, guys, come on. <laughs> so, this then leads to the in-universe acknowledgement of what I've been telling you up till now. And this does help things a little. 
Archer is specious. He is prejudiced against the Vulcans. This is when that really comes to the forefront in character. It's been obvious out of character, but, well, to be perfectly blunt, sometimes characters are written a certain way because their characters are, and sometimes they're written that way because the writers want them to be in that manner, if you understand the distinction. And this could have just been an e easily an example of bad writing. Oh, the Vulcans suck because the Vulcans suck. They're the antagonists, therefore they suck. But here Archer is acknowledging that he might be in the wrong here. Just the beginnings of it. Just the very beginnings of it. And he flat out admits how much it bothers him that she's helping out. He doesn't even know how to deal with this. This then leads to the big dramatic scene where it's like, yes, everything's going to be awesome. And that then leads to me to something I want to comment on. The music. This is the first scene I even noticed the music in. Because it's wallpaper. Because that's what they wanted. I've actually already talked about this over on TNG, Voyager, and Deep Space Nine. The wallpaper era of music. This is interesting because there are several songs by Dennis McCarthy which are very good. I already pointed one out. Archer's theme. But I just point that out because, once again, we have the wallpaper music thing. And honestly, I don't have anything else to add about that. So let's just move on to... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, this is, this is when things kind of go bad. Up until this point, I've been kind of with the episode, but then the, 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 we have that stupid nonsense with the decon chamber, which is almost immediately followed by them deciding to have the big third act action sequence, which involves hull plating offline. Now, as I already talked about in last week's episode, where I was talking about the lead-up to this, I just realized I'm going to cover the cage yesterday, aren't I? Obviously, like I said, I haven't done that yet. Anyways, whole plating offline is said with the exact same tonality and story beat of shields down. Um, later on, the whole plating comes back online. The magnetic plating comes back. That's neat! Woo! Um, okay. I've already complained about that. But what really struck me is in that scene where they were taking the damage and the shields went down, I realized that Archer is Janeway. Hear me out for a second. I actually like Kate Mulgrew as an actress. I like her acting. She's an excellent actress, and I love a lot of her roles. And I think half the reason I enjoy Janeway is because of Kate Mulgrew. It's also interesting that while the writers themselves could never come up with any characterization for Kate Mulgrew, her own presentation ended up lining up with my own headcanon for how I liked her, because apparently she was just pushing that out in her acting, and I just picked up on that, right? Cool, with it. But the problem with Janeway is twofold. First of all, she was the captain, and as I've said many times, she shouldn't have been. But second of all, and more importantly, she was always right. Don't, don't, don't pull a technique with me. You know what I mean. She was always in the right she was doing the right thing, and even when it seemed all logic and reason and her own screw were telling her something else, she always ended up doing the right thing, and it always ended up being correct. Because she's the hero, because the writing, well, the writing, the writing staff and the creative producers insisted, because they're moronically stupid, that we the actual fans, could never accept a female captain unless they emphasized over and over that she was flawless and perfect and right. This, in my opinion, is the biggest reason why Janeway fails as a captain, as a character, to be perfectly blunt, because she was always right. And now you see why I'm comparing her to Archer. Multiple times in this, art, this episode, Archer decides to do something that is stupid. 
That goes against logic or reason because he is bullheaded. Now remember, as I said earlier, I'm okay with that as long as that leads to failure. Archer needs to fail so that he can learn, so he can grow. But what we have, and, and that will happen, by the way, over in Season 3. Let's just go ahead and say that. But what we have now is straight-up Janeway. Random decision-making because they're the captain and they're right, and they always end up being proven right every single time. Now, I don't know if the rest of Season 1 and Season 2 is going to bear that out, but that'll be interesting to watch. So then, Travis Mayweather, or Merriweather, whatever stupid name is. Sorry, I can't think of his name. Travis. Ugh. I, he's, he's not stupid. I'm just, I'm upset at the show in general because what happens is the trained pilot who is teaching them how to use the pod, who can probably fly the pod, doesn't for some reason. Instead, they send the chief engineer and the captain. What? I know that's a bit of a Star Trek cliche, but this is extensive even for Star Trek. And as I pointed out before, at this point, my suspension of disbelief is completely shattered, and I'm just not willing to give the episode any flack whatsoever. Uh, slack, not flack. I'm giving it plenty of flack. I'm giving it no slack. English. This then leads to them being a dick towards DePaul a couple of times, and at one point he says, uh, it sounds like concern. I'm surprised you're having... Isn't concern an emotion? No. Archer. No, concern is not an emotion. Data showed concern. You arrogant, arrogant, ignorant prick. Smack. So, this then leads to Reed coming up with this magnetic weaponry, which will cause the ships to dis dis dissipate, which is actually a cool idea. And phase pistols. Okay. Cool. I'm actually with that. That's about as much of a characterization Reed gets this episode other than being horny, so I'm with it. We then hash cut to the pod where Tucker is like, um, I'm not sure how to do this because I'm not a trained pilot, I'm an engineer. <laughs> and credit where credit is due. What they do then from a directing perspective is they cut back and forth between loud action on the ship and quiet personal action as they're infiltrating the station. Let's call it what it is. That's cool. Also, Hoshi on the earpiece detecting where where, oh my god, Tucker is when they're escaping, that's actually a nice touch. And it leads me to something to comment on that, once again, leads me back to the whole Lore Runner rewrites thing. Paul is a good commander. Now, I've talked about the role of the commander several times, and I've kind of distinguished it very vaguely from the role of a captain. A commander is the one who is good tactically. They're the ones who know who to put where, when, and how in order to maneuver through a hostile situation. Commander. Riker shows that several times. Shelby shows that back in Best of Both Worlds. When he is allowed to actually do something, uh, Robert Beltran as Chakotay is a good commander. Kira is an excellent commander. Worf flits in and out of being a good commander. And what we see here is T'Pol is, in fact, a good commander. But as I was watching this, I just realized slowly that she was actually effectively being a better captain, too. And that got me thinking. What if this whole thing leads to this big disastrous conflict with the Klingons, which leads to, you know, two seasons worth of, of background auxiliary, you know, border skirmishes kind of a thing, and the Klingons becoming more aggressive and fighting amongst each other as well as others, and, you know, maybe doing a whole thing where they're so stupidly trying to seek out honor, and they're doing it individually so there's no unified Klingon front, it's just 50 different houses all doing stupid things, which is proving very disastrous. 
have Archer get kicked down. He becomes the first officer. To Paul becomes captain. See, the problem here is, you're probably thinking, well, hang on, that's completely against everything. But at the same time, I think I, I think I would be okay with that. Ignoring the fact that DePaul is demonstrably a better captain and commander than him in this episode, there's also the fact that she would represent the ideal, the Star Trek ideal, wouldn't she? Hear me out. Do we want a ship crewed entirely by humans who are proving that we can do it, or how about a ship crewed by humans run by a Vulcan who are united in their purpose? You see the direction I'm going with this? Obviously, this is the very beginnings of this. The Federation doesn't exist yet. But that ideal, I-D-I-C, could actually be something they could start to develop here with her being the one in command. And obviously, there's going to be conflict there, because, duh. So we have personal dramas already set up at the gate. I don't know. Feel free to tell me I'm a moron. It's just something that occurred to me as I was watching, because the episode does a good job of showing her doing a, thinking on her feet well and being good in a crisis multiple times. This mission was a success because of T'Pol like eight times in a row. I'm just saying. Then, then Ar Tucker argues with T'Pol for some reason. Uh, then we have Silic and Archer. <sighs> Archer's just kind of roaming around. At this point, I don't think he really has a plan because he's a moron. And honestly, I think he really was thinking to just have them leave him behind. Paul says that flat out to Tucker, and I agree. I think that was his overall goal. I will sacrifice myself for the sake of my ship. This is not the last time Jonathan Archer will do this. So, <clears throat> and by the way, that is a mistake. A captain should not actually do that. See, doomsday device for another example of this, but anywho. So... Archer interacts with Silic. It's a good scene. Silic, of course, talks to him and says, you're not really a threat to me, but you should leave. Archer says, no, I'm also not only not going to leave, I'm going to actually provoke you by mentioning that I know more than I should, and thereby present myself as a threat to you. Silic then attacks him. Some bullcrap happens, and Archer manages to live through that several times. And then Archer runs away. This is a weird scene. It feels like a first draft, if I'm being honest. The only credence I'm willing to give the scene at all is that Archer probably didn't think Silic was actually going to let him leave. Which, I mean, debatable? I don't know. Either way, finally he leaves. He gets beamed out, which... Okay, I'm actually with that, like I said, you know. Although, it's interesting, on the Orville that wouldn't even be an option, but moving on. Then they go to Klingons, and they have first contact with Marek, and Archer admits his prejudice against Vulcans, and he's going to try and move forward. She stays on the ship. He gives a terrible speech. The end. Okay, cool. One, one last thought. There's a bit earlier where he remembers something his dad said, which is, you, you can't be afraid of the wind. This then leads pretty much immediately into the scenes where T'Pol ends up being more helpful to the crew and to the mission, and to humans in general. I pretty much automatically took that as the wind being the Vulcans. They are the thing that's going to help uplift us and take us forward, and we can't be afraid of them because they're here for us, and blah, blah, blah. And I kind of got that vibe and was with it right up until the end where he finds out that there's this horrible death plasma storm, but we can't be afraid of the wind. What? 
And so the line falls completely apart for me, and the episode ends on a face-palming note. And I have to bring this up, because when I have discussed Enterprise back in the day, I can think of eight people personally who I have discussed Enterprise with. All of them brought up how much they hated that line and how much they wanted to smack Archer for the stupidity of it all. Yeah. And this is why Mum wanted to put the show down and I had to talk her out of it. Because while the episode kind of drifts in and out, and there's some good ideas, and there's some good stuff here and there, and then there's some bad stuff, it was mostly an average episode of Voyager. But then that's the part it ends on. We have barely managed this mission, and we're staying out here on our mission. Okay, and you can't be afraid of the wind. Let's go into an ion storm. What? I actually know two people personally who put Enterprise down after this episode because that was the last straw, basically. What did you think of it? How long have I been talking about this stupid episode? Hang on, let me look at the thing. Um, so, <clears throat> it's been a little bit. No wonder I'm tired. God, I need to go to bed soon. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts, such as they are. I'm pretty sure future episodes will be shorter than this. After all, they won't be double length. And hopefully I won't have as much to dissect. Either way, I'll see you guys next time. Oh, oh, God, the wind! No!